you uh, uh, have heard previously, I'm really pleased uh, to welcome our special guest speaker this morning. This morning is a focus on Open Doors, such a great organisation. Um, you know, uh, I've always loved the work of Brother Andrew right back from when I was a teenager and read his book, God's Smuggler. And I imagine many of you have probably done that as well. And so there's a special place here for, for Open Doors and what they do for the church all the way around the world. And so I just want to introduce James. Do you want to come forward? Can you make him feel welcome, please, as he comes? It's good to have you with us, Thank James. You. And uh, I'd just like to pray for him real quick. And then I'll hand over. God, this morning, uh, you know, we just thank you that you are here, Lord. And you are also everywhere around the world at the same time. You know, there's churches meeting all over. And uh, God, you are the same God everywhere. And we are all linked um, because of you. And I thank you, Lord, for Open Doors and Brother Andrew and, the, you know, the thousands that work for them. And God, for James this morning, we thank you that he can be here just to share some of what you are doing. Lord, I pray that you just open our hearts and minds to that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Hey, good morning. I think I've got my mic on. Yes, I'm good from my end. You guys good? Yes. Hey, thank you so much, um, Pastor Nathan, for your very, very warm welcome. Thanks to everyone watching online as well. And I just really wanted to mention you guys and just pray that you would realize that you're as much a part of this morning as um, everyone here in the room. Hey, huge privilege to be here. I think I've got a photo on the screen that will come up in just a moment uh, of my family, just as a means of an introduction. They're pretty awesome. Uh, They're a great group. I miss them. Uh, My wife, Stephanie, we're coming up 13 years married, which is just crazy. I don't know if anyone else has this theory. I often wonder if we're all school leavers in our head. I still feel like I'm about 18 years old. And then you blink and you've been married 13 years. Um, We've got nine-year-old Rose. Uh, Jude is seven. And Joy is our youngest. And she's certainly living up to her name. When we were naming Joy, we were worried, what if she's just not one of those people? (laughs) What if it just doesn't stick, but it's all good? She's uh, absolutely living up to her name, and she's a lot of fun. But uh, hey, this morning, uh, you know, as Nathan's already mentioned, we serve the persecuted church, help people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. And you know, I believe what we're experiencing here in Australia for the first time, certainly in my lifetime, we're experiencing... I guess, a little bit of suffering as a church together. And I feel uh, in many ways that we are entering into that kind of suffering of the global church. It's difficult and it's challenging, but at the same time, it reminds us that we are all a part of a family. I always love to tell stories. Brother Andrew, uh, as you mentioned, Nathan, uh, you know, love to tell stories. In fact, one of our core values, it's a bit of a mouthful, is that we're a people-to-people people. It's a lot of peoples. And, uh, and he says that he doesn't just pray for nebulous regions or countries, but he prays for people. So a lot of what I'm going to do today is tell you stories uh, like this one to encourage you to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters. Remember that they're not just a fact or a figure or a statistic. They're real people with real families and real lives. So this story is from Egypt. Um, and I had the privilege of visiting there just over 18 months ago absolutely changed my life. And uh, I met a group of people there. And uh, what had happened in this story was a young man, he was only 21 years old, and he had grown up in an environment of Islamic extremism. 
I need to point out that not all Muslims are terrorists. I don't know if you, like me, grew up in a part of the world where that's kind of what I was spoon-fed from a very young age, and I was, always had this latent fear of Muslims that I didn't even realise was there. I'd put to you, how do we begin to see people come to Jesus if we're terrified of them before we've even met them? It's a journey that I've been on in the last four years with Open Doors. But this young man had succumbed to that ideology of extremism. And he uh, sought to kill a local prominent Christian leader. So what he did was he strapped explosives to himself, uh, covered them up, and somehow made his way past the security checkpoint at the local centre of Christian worship. That in itself is a bit of a mystery to me how that even happened. But uh, what happened next was that the young man had grown up in the mosque, quite a simple leadership structure, one building, one prominent leader. So he thought it would be the same situation when he made his way to this local church. But when he got through the gate, uh, his plans were thwarted because there was actually uh, 25 buildings in this facility. So he had to change plans. He couldn't figure out where this Christian leader would be. So he just began stumbling around Uh, listening for where he could hear the most noise coming from. And on that day, it was a Thursday morning, and it happened to be the day of the week that the women gathered to pray and worship. Over 150 women were there on that day. He uh, began sort of stumbling towards the chapel where they were worshipping, and there was only one man present who was the security guard sitting in the gateway to the chapel. He could see straight away, Something was wrong, something was amiss with this man coming towards him, so he motioned for him to stop and turn back, but the man kept coming. Eventually, in an act of profound bravery, the security guard stood to his feet, ran towards the man, and the bomber detonated the vest. The security guard died instantly. What happened next was it triggered a chain reaction of events, The walls of the chapel collapsed and 27 women lost their lives on that day. The image behind me shows the memorial to these women where we sat and prayed for for hours and hours. You know, we see these kind of events on the news and I think we can become a little bit desensitized to it. Like I said, these are real people with real families. There were twin 13-year-old girls At church that day, their mum decided to stay at home and the girls went to church alone and never came home. I remember just being so overwhelmed with the gravity, the horror of the situation. The next image shows the still very clear, uh, you know, shrapnel marks up the walls of this beautiful building, hundreds of years old. And again, apologies if this is. A little bit confronting, but on that right image, you can see even the blood of some of those people who lost their lives is behind a sheet of perspex on that wall in their honour and in their memory. Again, like I said, I uh, was just so overcome by the sheer gravity of the moment, the terror of the moment. But do you know what, the, what was more, even more incredible than the, the terror and the horror? was what I saw in this next image. I was there on a Thursday morning, 150 women still gathered to pray and worship, almost in defiance 
ISIS has labelled Egypt as their next target. And they say to ISIS publicly, nothing you do could stop us from gathering to pray and worship our Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And again, that's no comment to you guys watching online at home as you continue to gather and pray and worship. It's not like you are better people for braving COVID and coming out and praying to worship. This is a different situation and there's much wisdom. I'm praying for your leaders as you continue to navigate this pandemic that we're in as a society. But those women were an example for me of what it looks like to literally stare death in the face and say, Jesus is more important to me. You can see even behind the scaffolding there, there was around 15 men who were working tirelessly to continue to repair and rebuild the church while the women were gathering and worshipping on the other side of the scaffolding. Now, I can't say too much about our work in this part of the world, but to give you an idea how we move around, our partner is a travel guide. And uh, she whispered in my ear and said, there's someone I would love you to meet today. I've just seen her across the forecourt. And so she took me by the hand and we walked towards Maria. Her image is on screen. Now, Maria, uh, her story began to become clearer as I got closer and closer to her. The guide was saying to me, you can see that she's still wearing black clothes, which is a sign that she's still in mourning of a loved one. Uh, You could be confused because of that beautiful smile on her face. As I got closer and closer to Maria, I could see the photo around her neck. It was of a man. And that man was the security guard, her husband, who gave his life with such bravery on that day. Now, I want you to think about Maria's journey with Jesus for a moment. If an incident like this happened, would you continue to cling to Jesus or would you run from him? It's a good question, right? Hopefully one that we'll continue to explore across this morning. And I love the way your worship leader, you led us so beautifully this morning, put it. Who is Jesus to you? That's something we talk about a lot at Open Doors. And it's my prayer that you would have a new and a fresh revelation of who Jesus is to you this morning. Because I can tell you, Maria clung to Jesus. But more than that, would you continue to attend the place of worship where you have a regular, almost daily reminder of the place where your husband lost his life. Maria, in a season of grief and loss, chose to cling to community. I believe in a season that we're facing now, it's more important than ever that we stick together as a church while remaining socially distant, obviously. (gasps) Community is so important. Maria chose to continue to stay in her community of faith. She realized how valuable and important that was. But more than that, she had one request to her church. Do you know what that was? She said, in my husband's honor, can I do his job? The day I met Maria, she was sitting in the gateway to the chapel, security guard at the local church. But more than that, welcoming people. And I loved your team that greeted me this morning. On the way in, you have a sacred and a solemn, a a joyful responsibility to welcome people to church. And that's exactly what Maria was doing. Look at that beautiful smile on her face, praying for people, encouraging them, reminding them. We're a community of faith. We're in this together. Jesus has a plan for your life. He's with you and he's for you. Maria is an example 
of the kind of people Open Doors serves all over the world. And their needs are vast and their needs are different. In Maria's case, we were actually the first responders on the day of that attack, the first ones there. And we were able to give her the urgent trauma care that Maria needed. You know, something happened, I don't know if you guys remember the Sri Lanka bombings a little while ago, and I was talking to some churches and all they wanted to do was say, we'd love to fund Open Doors and fund your work, but all we want to do is fund the rebuilding of that exact church. And it's very difficult for us because in many cases, insurance will cover the rebuilding of a church, but insurance won't cover the trauma care of an individual like Maria who's grieving the loss of a loved one. So we help them out. We help give them emergency food and, and, and give them you know, the financial support they need to rebuild. But more than that, we help them find a great job. In this case, Maria ended up finding the job of her dreams working at a local church. The next slide just shows you guys our tagline. So it's memorable. I think if you find on your seat as well, uh, we've got one of these, which will uh, give you an idea a little bit more of what we do around the world. Helping people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. And the reason we've said all over the world is that includes you and me today here in Australia. I believe there's this beautiful transaction that takes place where we give the persecuted church what they need, but in return, we learn from them. We find new ways to continue to serve Jesus no matter the cost in our world. And like I said before, I think the pressures that we're facing as a church are on the rise here in Australia. It's a new uh, it's a new day to serve Jesus. I've got young kids, as you've already seen. I think that the uh, challenges my children will face serving Jesus are very different to the ones I faced growing up as a child here in Australia. I've got a very short video that will give you a little bit of a summary. Open Doors is a charity, but we work a little differently. We don't exist to end persecution or even to avoid the things that try to stop us from following Jesus. Instead, we work to overcome these things together. Open Doors has been helping people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost, for the last 65 years. Through discipleship, we support Christians who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Discipleship is the heartbeat of the church. It's what sustains and grows the church into being bold, passionate, committed followers of Jesus. By discipling a believer from the persecuted church, you're investing into the future of faith in some of the hardest places to follow Jesus. We are all disciples of Christ, called to build each other up. So how will you invest in the faith of the generations to come? Disciple a believer from the persecuted church today, and together we can help people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. This uh, image on screen shows you uh, a map. It's a little bit hard to see some of the details, but we have a unit called the World Watch Unit, and they study persecution all over the world, in fact, well, well over the countries that we even are actively working in, and continue to produce this list, the top 50 most dangerous countries to follow Jesus. The areas that are in uh, that darker orange color are the most dangerous. Some of you who've been following our work will know that North Korea has been the number one most difficult place to follow Jesus now for almost 20 years in a row. Isn't that incredible? When I started with Open Doors, I thought I understood persecution. I thought, you know, I see ISIS on the news. Uh, I thought, you know, maybe the Roman emperors like Nero, it was something in the past. What you might not realize is that Christian persecution is worse and more significant and more widely spread now than ever in the history of the world. Over 200 
and 45 million Christians, one in eight Christians, experience a high to severe level of persecution every day. Somewhere like North Korea, our sources estimate, despite the challenges, this is the miracle in the story, over 300,000 Christians are alive in that country. Isn't that amazing? Despite the horrific abuse they face every single day of their life, 300,000 Christians alive. But 70,000 of those, at least, sitting in a prison cell right now. Not just a, a prison like an Australian jail either. These are experiencing some of the most horrific human rights abuses known to man. I read a report recently, in the last couple of months actually, of 26 women who had been detained, their only crime, owning a Bible, and they were put in a three-by-three-metre holding cell. 26 women. So if you're looking for something to pray for today, pray for the North Korean church, that they will stay strong and endure despite the challenges that face them. Now you might be thinking, James, where is the hope in this? What does Jesus say about this? Or what does the Bible say about persecution? And that's what I love. Hey, we can cling to the word of God in a season like this. This isn't a bad news story. In fact, this is part of the good news, I would believe. Let's have a look at what Paul says here. He's writing to a church in Philippi. And many of you know, Paul was an expert in the art of persecuting Christians. He used to uh, cause many Christians to suffer himself. We know that because he was complicit, complicit in the death of the first ever Christian martyr, Stephen. He's there holding their, the, the robes of the men that stoned Stephen to death. He goes on and has a profound encounter with Jesus. And then almost immediately or soon afterwards, himself is experiencing persecution. Sees both sides of the same coin. And then here he is writing to a church to encourage and strengthen them. And listen to his words closely. He says, But I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Did you catch that? Don't be alarmed, friends. The things that happened to me have actually helped the gospel go forwards. And that is so true still in the places we work all around the world. In fact, we say this at Open Doors, that serving the persecuted church were a little bit like an upside-down charity. Many other charities exist to stop something from happening, to cease poverty or to stop trafficking. Open Doors, we don't exist to stop persecution because that would actually be quite simple. We just tell people to stop sharing Jesus and their problems would go away. doesn't seem very biblical. In many ways, if you support the work of Open Doors you are actually prolonging people's suffering. Is that not the worst sales pitch you've ever heard in your life? But we can see here why. Paul says, the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I love this next passage. It's become evident to the whole palace guard, listen to this, and to all the rest. Some random unnamed group of people now know about Jesus because of Paul's suffering. They know that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's my second challenge to you this morning. I've already talked about this idea that you would grow deeper in your personal knowledge of Jesus. But more than that, that you would become more willing to share him. Paul says it himself there. 
that the brethren in the Lord, that's now you and me, have become confident in his chains. We can become confident in the chains of these people that are suffering around the world to share the good news of Jesus. I want to give you another practical example from some incredible people I met. Their photos will come up on screen. And I'm going to tell you about the man in the middle of this photo. His name is Din Van Zen. When I met Din Van Zen, well, I guess he still is the same age as me now. That's how time works. We're the same age within one month. I met him when I was 31. We had kids very close to the same age as mine. But we didn't connect immediately. In fact, it was quite awkward because I was the first white person he had ever seen in his life. And uh, through two translators, so one to from his local dialect to Vietnamese, Vietnamese to English, he began to share his story while looking at me like I was the strangest thing he'd ever seen. It was the best. These guys had traveled a long, long way to meet with us. Din Van Zen was the first convert to Christianity in his village of 100 people. Previously, unreached people group. We saw an image on the screen of your missionaries that you're supporting, Bible translators in Indonesia, and it is such a vital work. To give you an idea of, of our partners that are working in this region, uh, there is no written language. So you can't just airdrop a Bible in written form. You actually have to create a written language first. Can you get your mind around that? I couldn't. It takes 14 years to create a written language and to translate the Bible into that local. Blows my mind still. 14 years is too long. So what we do in the meantime is we record audio versions of the Gospels, put them on these uh, kind of top-secret chips that will dissolve if swallowed because it's illegal to own a Bible, uh, and we put them in these little solar-powered speakers that they can hook over the horns of their cattle while they're plowing their rice fields. Isn't that cool? They can hear the Gospel in their local dialect, which is so important because from a young age they're told English is a Western language, American. They still hate America because of the American War, as it's called in Vietnam. It's not called the Vietnam War. It's called the American War in Vietnam. They're told that Christianity equals English, which equals America, and they hate it from the moment they're born. But they go, wait a minute, this can't be true because I'm hearing Jesus speak to me in my own language, my heart language. That's what happened to Din Van Zen. He became profoundly aware of Jesus through one of these oxen broadcasts across the rice paddies. <laughs> he became a Christian. And he ran home to his local village, a hundred people, probably the capacity of this portion of the room. Everyone he knows, think about that for a moment, a hundred people. And he begins to tell one family after another about Jesus. Within three months, five families have become Christian. They call Christianity in this part of the world a virus. I thought that's appropriate. Given what we're facing, they try and stamp it out at all costs. This is a big problem to one of five communist regimes remaining in the world. It's fine in the big cities like Saigon or Hanoi, but in the regions like this, it's a big problem. So the government wheel into town a very literal propaganda machine, set up a PA system, projector screens, call a local town hall meeting, and they put Din Van Zen on stage, 31 years old. 
And they begin to roll video after video of malnourished children. And they say to the villagers, if you allow this man to convert your village to Christianity, this is what will happen to you and this is what will happen to your children. Your crops will die, your harvest will fail, your children will perish. That's what will happen if you allow this man to convert you to Christianity. They do it for hours on end. Seven days in a row. Until by the end of a week, the villagers are enraged, screaming at him, swearing at Din Van Zen, swearing at his children, spitting on them. The government know our job here is done. They don't want to be seen to actively persecute Christians. It's not good for diplomacy or tourism. It's true. So they pack down their PA system and they leave town, leave the villagers to do their worst. Din Van Zen began to weep as he told us what happened next. He was a subsistence farmer, had a small rice crop in his backyard to feed his family. The villagers would just let their oxen loose through his property, destroying his only means of feeding his family. He was a bit of an entrepreneur and he had a small plantation of trees that he was planning to mill, turn into paper and sell at the market to give his kids an education. Just think how demoralizing this would be. The villagers taunting him come through and cut down his trees in front of him. By now, he was sobbing as he began to tell us about his pride and joy. This one pig that he could afford to raise. And now I could tell there was a huge cultural mismatch here. I can just drop down to the supermarket and buy some meat. That's not what this was about. This animal represented three years' salary to this man. Three years. Think about the weight of that cost for you. And the villagers came through and killed the animal in front of his family, cooked it and ate it. He was sobbing, so broken. Went on and on. For four hours we heard story after story. At one point they even snatched his newborn child out of his arms, threatened to kill it on the ground in front of him. He managed to get his child away, run into the forest. He lived in the forest for three weeks. We just couldn't comprehend to the point that when you're sitting in a meeting like this, you just ask the stupidest questions. The first of which was, Din Van Zen, why do you follow Jesus? Think about your question for us this morning. Why do you follow Jesus? You know what he said to us? Because I know him. It ruined me. I grew up in a Christian home. I worked at a church for 10 years. Do I know Jesus to the extent that I would endure that kind of suffering for his name's sake? Makes you ask some big questions. You know, in fact, the suffering was so severe, we actually offered to move Din Van Zen to a different village. Our work is to strengthen Christians to remain, so that's quite unusual in itself. We said, you know, maybe you need to move here for a while and get healthy, rebuild for a moment. He said, if I go, who will share the gospel with them? I'm just sitting there thinking, when was the last time I risked anything? To share the gospel. 
I arrive at home and I push the little remote control on my garage remote and I drive into my house and I don't tell anyone about Jesus. You know, that's actually what this pandemic has done for me. It's forced me to be at home and it's forced me to get to know my neighbours. I've had some really great conversations with them in the last couple of months. My next door neighbour actually said to me, he's contemplated taking his own life at one point. And I thought, you know what, I never would have had those kind of conversations. I never would have been able to share Jesus without this kind of suffering that we're in now together. Now, you might be wondering, how do we help someone like Din Van Zen? Where's the gospel in that? And how do we continue to serve these people? The man on Din Van Zen's left here, you can't quite see it in this image, but he was the second convert to Christianity and he had recently endured such a severe beating that his whole face was so swollen he needed urgent dental repair work. So we have a team in Vietnam. I wonder if they self-branded this department because they were really proud of this. They were like Aussies, these guys. They were awesome. And they've branded this department the Rapid Response Force. Doesn't it sound like something an Aussie would call their, their department the Rapid Response Force? I would love to do a video promoing that department, the Rapid Response Force. And they, um, they get an SMS on their phone when an incident like this goes down. We have this vast network of underground <laughs> contacts. They get an SMS on their phone when something goes down. They jump on their motorbike and they drive 1,400 kilometres into the Vietnamese rainforest and they find these men. And they look them in the eyes and they say, Jesus is still with you. God has a plan for your life. He hasn't forgotten you. There's a church all around the world praying for you. You're a part of a family. How many of you know, though, words in themselves just wouldn't be enough? So we put them on the back of the motorbike, drive them to Ho Chi Minh City, pay for their medical expenses. Still one of the most tangible, practical examples of our work and was the only real reason I had the privilege of meeting those men on that day. Din Van Zen uh, is just incredible. We um, helped him to rebuild his home. His home was actually nearly destroyed by the villagers, bought him some new animals and crops. But what he wanted more than anything else in the world was to go to Bible college. Again, I can't share too much how you would even implement that, but let's just say, check, and there's a vast network of underground churches in that region that are going great for Jesus. So continue to pray for those men. I wish I could share more, but I can't. But their photos are on screen there so that you can remember to pray for them and pray for the underground church in that part of the world. Let's see what Paul goes on to say in the next passage of Scripture to encourage believers. Remember that first principle there. How Do you, do you know Jesus and are you willing to share his gospel? Because we can see both of them are evident in this passage of Scripture. Paul goes on to say, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. That's my third encouragement to you today. Let's not forget that we are a part of a global body of Christ. That, this, that, uh, uh, that your prayers make a difference. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest ex expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. There it is again. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's my 
last thought for you this morning is a call to prayer. Continue to pray for the persecuted church all around the world, your family, your brothers and sisters, that we would be one with them. And just think about that last verse there. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm just going to skip the next story and finish with the last scripture. Actually, uh, the teachings of Jesus here encouraging the church. And he says, sorry guys, I've gone and mixed up your flow. He says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. We talked a lot about death and suffering this morning. It's difficult and it's challenging in our climate. But I like to think of this principle. Jesus here prophesying, foretelling his own imminent death, but he's reminding us that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, there it produces many seeds. And I see their stories, the stories of Maria's husband, Din Van Zen, like that, uh, the grain that is going forwards. And I pray that it would fall on fertile soil this morning. I have one final story for you, maybe as the team get ready to come and close. This is from a young boy. His name is Noah. And Noah fled the horrors of Iraq uh, from ISIS. And he's got a pretty cool story that I want you guys to look at on screen as we close. Thanks. Ali Badrastila, O Allah Safilo, Wakatura, Joseph Tamiotua, Wasanders Gabi, Arabuan, Kalmanders Kiptarhof, Korot Kadam, Anna Horwathi, Akhneman, that Abrahakum Alhonduran, Liani Batoharo. خلمي أنا كبن دعم الكلمة شكبن أنا كبن بيشن مدرس ضد وأين يمت بابن وأجدادني له أنا أجدادين أكشاوقلي من دي بيشن قوية آخر روح قدشة نوى is now 15 years old And since we filmed that video with him, uh, Open Doors has had the privilege of taking him all over the world. He's met with some of the team uh, that report directly to the President of the United States. He's met with um, the, the leaders of the UN, advocating on behalf of the persecuted church right throughout the Middle East. I want you to just continue to think about those people, maybe as we close in prayer this morning. Maybe you feel uh, to partner with the work of Open Doors. Don't feel any pressure. But if that is you... Uh, either by prayer, the way we do that is just fill out this form, don't feel compelled to give financially, but I would love all of you to commit to pray. 
If you fill in this form, we can continue to give you free prayer resources and prayer updates. We'll email you these beautiful prayer guides, 30-second prayers a day to stay one with the persecuted church. And if you do feel to give, we put it like this. I think it's on the next slide that you might continue matching a subscription in your life to the survival of the persecuted church. I have a Netflix subscription, not proud to admit it. (laughs) It's like money down the drain, isn't it? Uh, Think about matching something like that. It might even be a regular coffee, $5 a month or something like that. Subscribe to the survival of the persecuted church. Again, don't feel compelled or coerced to give today, but if that's something that's speaking to you, then feel free. I'll be waiting near the table at the back at the end of the service. But why don't we close and pray for those few people that you've met this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for Maria in Cairo. I pray that you'd be with her, Lord God. Give her the strength and the courage, the endurance to continue to serve you there. I pray that you would meet her in her grief and in her loss, that you would be present to her as wonderful counsellor, everlasting father. God, I thank you for Din Venzen, for Noah, and for the global persecuted church. Help us to remember that they are our brothers and sisters. When one part of the body suffers, every part suffers. And Lord, we're so grateful here for the privileges and the freedoms we have. I pray for Hills Church as they navigate this season of pressure. For many of us, the first time that we're feeling that squeeze of an external force in our lives, I pray that you would help us to rise to the challenge and to serve you with boldness, with courage. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to continue with you. We lift you up. We worship you. We magnify you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much, Hills Church.